0: Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen before, the Belgian Confession has four articles, really, on the whole subject of justification. The first two of those articles really deal with the satisfaction of Christ, that's Articles 20 and 21, and the last two, with the result of that satisfaction, our justification. Article 22 is about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Article 23, our subject for today, is really about the fruits of our justification in our lives. But it does begin, the first paragraph of the article does begin with a kind of review of the doctrine of justification by faith, and it's in the second paragraph that we find the substance of the article, And so what we're going to do today is is review that first paragraph briefly and then focus our attention especially on the second paragraph. Now the first paragraph reads as follows, We believe that our salvation consists in the remission of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake and that therein our righteousness before God is implied. As David and Paul teach us, declaring this to be the blessedness of man, that God imputes righteousness apart from works, Romans 4, verse 6, Psalm 32, verse 1. And the same apostle says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the Confession makes two statements about justification there in that paragraph. The first is that our salvation consists in the remission of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake. Now that may be actually slightly too broad a statement, because there are really two parts to our salvation. Justification, which is what the uh, Confession is talking about there, and sanctification, the... uh, release from the uh, guilt of sin through the blood of Christ, but also the release from the power and dominion of sin through the uh, application of that blood uh, by the Holy Spirit, the washing of our souls with that blood of Christ, or the giving to us of the right to life in justification and the actual giving of life in sanctification. So there are two parts to our salvation. Our salvation consists in what Christ has done for us on the cross, but also in what he has done in us by his Holy Spirit in applying to us all the benefits of that salvation. Nevertheless, what the confession may well mean here is simply that the uh, whole idea of remission of sins is foundational. That is, it is first, and nothing else can happen apart from it. Our sanctification cannot take place unless first we are justified. And that's a very important point, of course, to make. And it's an important point to make because it shows us very clearly that our sanctification, our good works, play no role in our justification. They follow our justification. They do not precede it. So our salvation then consists in the remission of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and we may add it also consists in our sanctification, which is the subject of Article 24, the next article in the Belgic Confession. The second statement that the Confession makes about justification is that in this remission of sins, our righteousness before God is implied. The remission of our sins means that on a daily basis, God forgives our sins for the sake of Christ's blood. Our justification, we may put it this way, our justification was accomplished when Christ died. As Paul indicates in Romans 4, verse 25, when he says that Christ was raised because of our justification. Our justification was complete. That is, the debt for our sins was fully paid. But we need the application of that gift to our guilty consciences for the remission of our sins or for the forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus. And the remission of our sins in Christ, the justification itself that happened at the cross, is applied to us daily as we confess our sins to God, as we come to him with repentant and sorrowing hearts and ask him for forgiveness. When we stand in the judgment before him, then he declares us to be righteous and declares to our guilty consciences that they need not be uh, fearful any longer of his condemnation. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, the confession also cites uh, two scripture passages in connection with this um, idea of justification by faith. The first is Romans chapter 4, verse 6, but I think we should actually read there verses 5 through 8. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's a quotation from Psalm 32. But notice there that David is describing the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord imputes righteousness apart from works. So we receive the knowledge of our justification, and in receiving that knowledge, we are blessed. That's what the confession is talking about here. And the other passage that is cited is Romans 3 verse 24 where he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I think what the confession is doing there is it's distinguishing between redemption and uh, justification in the forum of the conscience. We receive justification, the knowledge of our justification by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that's what the Confession has to say about justification by faith. It's not a complete statement. That's for found in Article 22. But we do have a brief review of it here. We turn our attention now to the fruits of this justification in our lives as we find it in the second paragraph of the article. And that paragraph reads... As follows, and therefore we always hold fast this foundation, ascribing all the glory to God, humbling ourselves before him, and acknowledging ourselves to be such as we really are, without presuming to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours, relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, which becomes ours when we believe in him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread, without following the example of our first father Adam, who, trembling, attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. And verily, if we should appear before God relying on ourselves or on any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas, be consumed. And therefore, everyone must pray with David, O Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous, Psalm 143, verse 2. In that paragraph, I think we may identify four fruits of our uh, remission of sins. And the first of those fruits is that we hold fast this foundation. And what the Confession means by that, simply, is that this is our confession, and we intend to hold fast to that confession. We intend not to repudiate that confession. That confession is important to us, objectively speaking, and it's important to us, objectively speaking, because we recognize it as a key component of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any departure from this doctrine is a departure from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and The fathers meant to say this when they were opposing the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation and at the time that this confession was written. They were saying this is a foundational doctrine of our faith and the Roman Catholic Church is wrong about this and has departed from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in doing it. We intend to hold fast then to this. But I think the confession also means here that this uh, confession is, uh, we intend to hold fast to this confession, rather, because it is important to us subjectively. This truth of justification by faith alone, this truth of remission of sins by the grace of God alone is very precious to us, and we will not let it go. We will It is so important to us that we will even give our lives for it. In fact, the author of this confession, Guido de Bray, did give his life for this doctrine and other doctrines of the Reformed faith. He wrote this confession in about 1561 and He was an object of persecution by the Roman Catholic Church. Eventually, he was captured and he became a martyr for his faith. He refused to deny this. He held fast to this confession, even in the face of death. And we say here in this article with him, we always hold fast to this foundation. This truth is so precious to us so important to us, so important to our peace and happiness, that we will not let it go under any circumstances whatsoever. The second fruit of our justification is that we ascribe all glory to God. That is, we give to him the entire credit for this work of justifying us in the blood of Jesus Christ. We take no credit for ourselves. Now, it was in God's purpose in reserving this work of justification to himself alone. God's purpose in giving us no part in this work of justification was exactly that, that he might receive the glory. He is jealous of his glory. He he says, in fact, in Exodus, that his name is jealous. He is the jealous God, jealous for his own glory. And he wants the glory of our salvation to be his own. Let's look at a few passages from the scriptures that show us this. The first one is Judges chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, Gideon has called together an army to go and fight against the Midianites, and he has an army of about 30 or 35,000 men to fight against the Midianites, who have an army of about 125,000 men. In other words, Gideon is outnumbered four to one. And the Lord said to Gideon, Judges 7, verse 2, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Last, Israel can't claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God did not want the people of Israel to be able to say, I did something. My own hand has contributed to my salvation from the Midianites. He wanted them to say, this victory is altogether of God. He wanted the glory, in other words, of that victory for himself. That's his purpose in our salvation. And we read the same thing in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 42. Notice that in verses 6 and 7 of that chapter, God speaks of his work of salvation. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Notice the emphasis on I. I have called you, I will hold your hand, I will keep you, I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. And it's implied that he will be the one who opens blind eyes, who brings out prisoners from the prison house, and so on. But notice then his explanation of why he does that. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. That's verse 8. God says, My glory I will not give to another. The glory of this work of salvation must be mine, is what he is saying. And in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 10 and 11, something very similar to that. There God again speaks of his saving work. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? And finally, also in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul says there that God... Um, has chosen the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. And then in verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So it's God's purpose in our salvation, in reserving the work of salvation to himself alone, it's God's purpose that he should be the one who receives the glory for it. And as we understand this work of salvation and as we uh, receive this work of salvation, as we receive that justification and righteousness which is in Christ Jesus, we align ourselves with that purpose of God. We see that he is the one who has saved us and we desire then to give to him the glory that is due to him for it. We do not glory in ourselves, but we glory instead in the God of our salvation. Let's look at a couple of scripture passages also in that regard. First of all, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind, and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 8 and 9 of that same chapter, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the Father, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Or, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And also 1 Peter 2, verse 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we ascribe all glory to God. We align ourselves with the purpose he has um, formed in connection with our salvation. That's the second fruit of our justification by faith. The third fruit, then, is that we humble ourselves before God. The Confession puts it this way, we acknowledge ourselves to be such as we really are. And what we really are, of course, is first of all, creatures of the dust, infinitely less than the mighty and holy God not capable, even in the best of our states, to save ourselves from our sins. We simply don't have that kind of power. The kind of power that our salvation requires is a divine power, and it's not a creaturely power at all. But we also acknowledge ourselves to be sinners, not worthy of that salvation, but worthy only of condemnation. In these two ways, we humble ourselves. We confess ourselves to be dust and sin. And humbling ourselves, then, we do not presume to trust in anything in ourselves or any merit of ours. We do not look at our own works and say, these deserve something from God. We do not look at anything in ourselves and say, well, this will help in our salvation. We look instead at our sins and we say, I am damn worthy before the face of God, and I deserve nothing except damnation. And we look at our righteousnesses, if we have any, and we say, they are nothing but filthy rags. Merit is impossible for us. If we are to be justified, our justification must come from God and from God alone. We can do nothing of ourselves. In that way, then, we humble ourselves before him. And the fourth fruit, then, of our justification by faith alone is that we rely on the obedience of Christ crucified alone. This obedience of Christ crucified becomes ours when we believe in him. But what the confession is talking about here is again that day-to-day act of faith that we perform when we are sorry for our sins. It's a very practical matter that we rely every day when we sin on the obedience of Christ crucified alone. We do not look to ourselves, we look to Christ crucified. We say, in him is our righteousness. He is, has been made by God for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our all in all. He is our complete Savior. He is the one to whom, in whom, we put our trust. Now there's another part yet to this article on justification, and that is that when we find, when we look to the obedience of Christ crucified alone, when we rely on that obedience and do not trust in ourselves, we find then that that obedience of Christ is sufficient. And there are four kinds of sufficiency that this uh, article in our Confession identifies. In the first place, that uh, obedience of Christ is sufficient to cover all our iniquities. That's very obvious. We rely on Him alone. But in relying on him alone, we find that we don't need anything else. We don't need to add anything to what he has done. It's sufficient to cover all our iniquities. And to cover all of those iniquities completely. There's nothing, nothing at all, that we need to add to that obedience of Christ. He has paid the debt fully He has earned for us righteousness before God. He has earned for us the favor of God, and there's nothing we need to do in order to obtain it. We simply rest in him, trust in him, look to him alone. The second sufficiency of the obedience of Christ is that it gives us confidence in approaching to God. We could not, in fact, approach to God at all without this sufficiency of Christ's obedience. If Christ's obedience were not ours, or if that obedience were insufficient, it would not be possible for us to come into the presence of God. He hates all workers of iniquity, and he drives them away. There's no place for sin in the presence of God. But knowing that that obedience of Christ is a complete covering for our sins, we have confidence in drawing near to God. Therefore, the Apostle says at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, And that's after he has described for us the grace and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's because of him, therefore, that we come boldly to the throne of grace. We see a great example of that boldness in Jacob when he wrestled with the angel at Peniel. Jacob wrestled with that angel all night. And he exerted all his strength and tried every trick he could think of to overcome and prevail against that angel. And he failed completely. That was a picture of us relying on our own strength. Finally, God broke his strength by touching his thigh and by making him lame. And it was only then when his own strength had been broken that Jacob found what it took to prevail with God. He simply laid hold of him and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. That was not presumption. That was an act of faith on Jacob's part. That boldness of faith, which knows that God is merciful, in Christ Jesus, which knows that he wills our blessing when we seek him by faith. And so we may say with Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless me. The third thing that the confession points to as a fruit of the sufficiency of the obedience of Christ is that it frees our conscience from fear, terror, and dread. This is, of course, one of the reasons why we cannot come into the presence of God by ourselves. When we come with our sins upon us, or when we think of coming into the presence of God with our sins upon us, the terror of God's destroying wrath will overcome us. If we really understand what our sins are, and if we do not have a Christ to cover our sins in his sight, there is nothing but dread and fear and terror and desire to get away in us. This is what the Apostle is talking about in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says there, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now that passage talks about death as belonging to the devil He is the one who had the power of death and about God releasing us from the fear of that death over which the devil has power. But the devil has power over death because God has given it to him. And death is ultimately, of course, the wrath of God against our sins. And God, through his Son, who has partaken of flesh and blood, releases those who, through fear of death, We're all their lifetime subject to bondage. We are not afraid of him when we come into his presence, and we are not afraid because Christ's obedience is sufficient for us. In fact, so little do we fear his judgment that we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that brings us to the final fruit of the sufficiency of Christ's obedience. And that is that we find no reason to follow the example of Adam who covered himself with fig leaves. When Adam sinned in the garden he was ashamed of his nakedness and he covered himself with fig leaves to try to cover his shame. God called him into his presence and Adam came into his presence with the fig leaves on him hoping that somehow those fig leaves would hide from the searching eye of God the shame of his sins. But we have as the covering for our sins, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have no need to try to hide from the sight of God our sins. In fact, of course, we want him to expose those sins so that we may confess them and be cleansed from them. Hebrews chapter 4 also talks about the word of God as being living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we do not seek to escape from the power of that sword of God, But we deliberately approach God, draw near to God, and ask him to pierce us with that sword so that our sins may be exposed to our own consciences and so that we may confess them and be freed from them. We don't have any reason to try to cover our sins. We don't have any reason to hide away in some corner of our hearts some sins that we don't want God to see. The very opposite is true. We want nothing to remain hidden from his eyes. We want ourselves to be fully known so that we can receive the great blessing of forgiveness, of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. To sum up then, the confession talks here about four fruits of justification by faith. Steadfastness in the faith, glorifying God, being humble regarding ourselves, and trusting completely in the obedience of Christ for us. And four uh, Ways in which that obedience of Christ is sufficient for us is sufficient to cover all our iniquities, it's sufficient to give us confidence in approaching God, it's sufficient to free us from the terror of His destroying wrath, and it's sufficient to keep us from trying to hide our sins from God as Adam did with his poor fig leaves. The article then concludes in this way, Verily, if we should appear before God, relying on ourselves or on any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas, be consumed. We pray when we come to God, Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. That is as we are in ourselves. We look at ourselves and we say, Lord, do not judge me as I am in myself. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. But in Christ Jesus, we come to God and we pray, Judge me, God of my salvation. Because we know that the one who judges us is also the one who gave himself for us, whose blood has been shed, and who, when he looks upon us, sees no iniquity in us. Sees us as righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ and worthy of everlasting life. May God bless you with his word.